Tonight we are beginning a new book, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and the questions will cover verses 1 through 6, and normally I, ju I just read the verses that cover the questions, but because it's the start of a book, uh, I'm going to read the whole first chapter before we get into our questions, and there's five questions. If you need them, they're on the back table. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'll begin reading there in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and the Lord, having received his word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out, so that, you, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And correctly read, barring any mistakes on my part, reads the ten verses that cover chapter one of the book of First Thessalonians, chapter one. Obviously, these were written divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the first letter to those in Thessalonica. And there were many things that they were being praised for, there were many things that they were known for. What we're going to find later on, especially by the second letter, that there were some things that needed to be corrected. There's a lot of encouragement that happens, I think, in 1 Thessalonians and by 2 Thessalonians because of their misunderstanding about when the Lord was going to come back. Uh, Paul had to correct some things, and he does that. But backing all the way up to the very beginning, we begin in verse 1, and it's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, the question is, who was Silvanus, and what is meant by the phrase, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, Silvanus, obviously, I think we all know this, was Silas. And Silas was a companion of the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, as we read about in Acts chapter 15 and verse 40. When they reached Lystra, they met a disciple by the name of Timothy... And Paul took him along on this journey. In fact, Paul, uh, Timothy was Paul's most notable disciple. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 through 23, we find that he, he traveled with Paul during his second and third missionary journeys and stayed near Paul during his first Roman imprisonment. So what does it mean when he says, or why does he say, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, obviously, he's writing to the church. Later on, he's going to call them the elect. 
But in the very beginning of this letter, he says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of ideas about that. First of all, God and Jesus Christ are not the same person. In fact, some would say, and some do believe, that it is God himself as Jesus Christ. It's all the same person. But there are three that bear record in heaven. We know that. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. And when John would say, and these three are one, it doesn't mean that they're one person. It means they're one in the same by way of purpose, by way of agreement, and they work together in every way. But there are three separate personages in the Godhead. But it's interesting because he says God and Jesus Christ, and he makes a distinction between the two and yet ties them together at the same time. I think there's several reasons about that. Well, first of all, they do work together and they for the same purpose. But you have to remember, too, that many of the early converts that Paul dealt with came from Judaism, and they were Jewish by blood. In fact, later on, there were those that would try to reject Jesus himself. And I think that the fact that Paul begins this letter by saying it is God and Jesus Christ to show that, first of all, number one, the assembly of the church is not a Jewish assembly. That's number one. It's of Jesus Christ. It is a Christian assembly. That's number one. Number two, I think it also proves to them you can't have God without Jesus Christ. They go together. Now, they work together. They're different in this regard by way of uh, duties, I would say, perhaps, or roles regarding the church. Number one, first and foremost, God is the Father. And Jesus is the ruler. In fact, Jesus would say that all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. God gave Jesus the power. So all authority is given to the Son, and that's Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is doing is he's tying them together. You cannot have God without Jesus Christ. And to have Jesus Christ is also to have God. They work together, and when, with regards to the church... You cannot separate them at all. Then he goes in verse 2. And he says, We give thanks to God always for you, always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And then also this uh, verse covers, uh, this question covers verse 3 also, which I will read. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, and of our God and Father. First of all, giving thanks to God always for them, making mention of them in your prayers. You know, statements like that was very common to Paul. I heard somebody say one time, wouldn't it have been nice to have been included in the prayer list of the Apostle Paul? When Paul would say a number of times in his writings, and he wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament, and many times Paul would say that he makes mention of them in his prayers, daily mentioning them in his prayers. Paul obviously was a man of prayer and gave a great example by his own prayer life. He begins by saying, he says to them, I give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Then he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, 
and patience of hope. The question is this. What is a work of faith and what is a labor of love? Now, obviously, the threefold combination of faith, hope, and love was a favorite of Paul. In fact, Paul says those very things, and the greatest of these is love, and so forth. So obviously, these are tied together. And what Paul is doing is he's, re he's referring to a fulfillment of spiritual duties that results from three spiritual attitudes. And obviously this too, let, let's just make mention of this in passing because I won't spend very much time on this. We know that there's a difference between faith and meritorious works. We get that. Many believe today in the religious world that we are saved by faith alone or faith only. And we know that that's not true. But there's a difference between a meritorious work and a work of obedience. And what's brilliant about what Paul is doing here is Paul puts together the word work and the word faith in the same sentence. It is a work of faith. A couple examples about that. First of all, if we demonstrate our faith by obedient works, it's an expression of our faith. It is an outward expression of our inward faith. It's faith in action. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, though, Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, we know that the word of God is connected to faith. It has to be. And really, when you think about it this way, if you think about works that are done by faith, a work cannot be a faith in accordance with the will of God that is not founded on the word of God or supported by the word of God. Remember when the Bible talks about be ready for every good work? You know, sometimes people can think that a work is good because they look and they see the good that comes from it. And they think, well, that's a good work. And if something is achieved that is good, then how can it be bad? I'm talking about from a spiritual perspective. But a work is only good if it's in accordance with the will of God. It has to follow suit with the word of God. Faith is the foundation based upon the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, it is what God authorizes. So our work to be acceptable to God must be a work of faith that is connected to the word of God and what God has authorized. And then he says labor of love. Christians uh, need to understand that not only do we follow the works that we must do in obedience, but it has to be a work of love. It's kind of like our giving, right? You know, Paul says with our giving, he says not of necessity, he said, not grudgingly. In other words, in any aspect of our Christian life, we can't do it just because we know we need to be obedient to the word of God, so therefore we just do it. And we have, uh, and maybe even resisting against it, but we just go through the motions. You can do have a work of faith, which is a work of obedience, but if it's not a work of love or it's not a labor of love, it's vain. It needs to be from the right motive, the right perspective, the right attitude. It needs to come from the right heart, the right spirit, and it must be a labor of love. So, a work of faith is a work of obedience that demonstrates our faith, and that's based on the Word of God. 
A labor of love is when you do that and love is the basis or the motivation behind it. I didn't ask this in the question, but look at, look at the phrase patience of hope. These two things really go together because you can't really have one without the other, and they really do go together. For example, um, if a person doesn't have hope, and I can't even imagine living the Christian life without hope. If, if all we had was this life and there was nothing else, and there was nothing after this life. You know, Paul says we are of all men most miserable. And if you think about the idea of hope, hope is something that we trust God for the future. Faith is when we trust God in the present. But hope is what we hope for for the future. Now, hope, if we have hope, it produces what? It produces patience, and that word means perseverance. So if we have the proper hope... It will give us the proper patience or perseverance to make it to the end. So they go together. All these go together. And so also, too, if you flip it around, if you don't have the proper perseverance, you don't have any right to the hope that comes after this life, too. They go together for the promised reward. Question number three. Uh, what does the phrase election by God mean? And it covers verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, now, obviously, first let's just define the word election. The word election means choice, election, or selection. And what's interesting is, is when Peter dealt with this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, he talks about the elect. And really, it's, it's misunderstood a lot today, but it's very simple. God has elected or predetermined the kind of person that's going to be saved. It doesn't mean that he chose one man over here, you're going to be saved, you're not going to be saved, you're going to be saved, you're not going to be saved. What it means is, is he has made the determination, he has predetermined the class of person that's going to be saved, and that's an obedient Christian. Okay? That is God's election. But you become the elect of God when you obey the gospel. So by your own obedience and your part, that's conditional divine election. God's part, he set in an order. Man's part, you're elect when you obey the gospel. So that's what it actually means. We are elect. We are the elect of God. And it puts all the emphasis on us too. As Peter says, make your calling an election Sure, showing that our conduct, our obedience, our behavior, our works, and all of that truly matter too. Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Um, the question is, break down this verse and explain its meaning. The first part of the verse where it says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. I think what this means is, what he's saying is, the gospel did not just come by the eloquent speech or the eloquent words of man. It's more than that. It didn't just come that way. But also in power. Now, it kind of makes you think at first... That what he's talking about is, he's talking about miracles when he says power. 
but not necessarily. And, and I, I don't think that's what he means specifically. Because if he was talking about the gospel being preached to them by not only the words, but power, miraculous power, we don't find any of those indications where the word of God to Thessalonica actually came in that way. I'm not saying that there were no miracles in the revelation or confirmation of the word. What I think he's saying, though, is this. The power came as the inspired Holy Spirit inspired those that preached the word of God. It's powerful. It wasn't just in eloquence of speech. It came also, it came by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I did read one commentator, and he, I, I thought he, this is a really good point that he made. He said, The gospel is not just an invitation. It's not just an invitation. It is the power of the word of God that has the power to save you. Therefore, the power comes from the word of God. It wasn't just the speech of man. It wasn't just man's words. It came with power. And the power is the gospel. And the gospel was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So I think that's what he's talking about. Vincent said it's the power of spiritual persuasion and conviction. <clears throat> Now, I'll tell you something. It doesn't make any difference when it's been, either back in the days of the early church. Modern times in the United States of America, on foreign soil, it doesn't matter. The power of the gospel still is the same. In fact, you know, so many times people have said to me, oh, you go to the Philippines and, you know, you might baptize 80 or 100 people. And then you come back home and, you know, you hold a whole meeting and you, you preach your heart out, the whole meeting. You preach the same word of God. You preach the same gospel. And you might have a number of visitors that come and attend that gospel meeting. And you'll be lucky if you baptize anybody during the course of that meeting. And sometimes people have said, well, is it discouraging or is it depressing? And the answer to that really is no. Because when you go places and see the word of God and the power of the word of God, you realize it's not the problem of the preaching and it's not the problem of the word of God. The problem is the heart of the recipient. It's the heart of the recipient. And one more thing too. You remember when Jesus gave the parable of the sower? You remember the very first one that he said? The very first one. He said the wayside soil. Now, we understand when we preach the word of God, it's like taking seeds and scattering it or broadcasting it like they used to do in the old days. And by the way, in the Philippines, we, we would drive down the road. Oh, look, he's broadcasting. They do that. Grab a handful and fling it like this. Do you remember when Jesus said that which fell on wayside soil? It was the hard pan. It was the, it was the footpath that people walked. And it was so hard that the seed could not penetrate the earth, right? Later on, Jesus said that the birds come and eat the seed. Later, he find, we find in his explanation of that, he says, who the birds represent. The birds, that's the devil. Sometimes people think, you know what? 
it's my choice, it's my decision, and if I say yes or I say no, do you not realize if somebody has the wrong heart and the seed of the gospel is spread and it lands on that hard heart, they might think that they have the power to make all those choices and all those decisions, but the devil takes the seed away. I think we have a lot of that today. I think we have a lot of that in the preaching of the gospel. Somebody hears the, hears the gospel, they don't have the right heart, and before it could penetrate their hardened heart or their heart can be prepared properly, the devil takes the seed away. My point is this. The power of the gospel is as it always has been. And it doesn't matter where it's preached. It's always been and always will be the power that will save a man. It's the heart of man that makes the difference. It's the heart of the recipient. It's the power of spiritual persuasion and conviction. And obviously, when in this verse, when it says, and in the Holy Spirit, it very likely is in reference to the fact that Paul spoke by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what that means. But then he says something interesting. He says, in much assurance. Vincent said, this is assured persuasion of the preacher, or that the preacher, that the message is divine. Now, there were a time when the word of God was not was not completed. So miraculously, the Holy Spirit had to reveal uh, the revelation of God's word to man who could therefore proclaim it. And so that was in the age of miracles. That was before the word of God was revealed and confirmed and finalized. And because of that revelation, they had great assurance that what they were speaking was true. And I think that's what he's saying here. It was in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was in much assurance. You know, it really matters to someone who's listening to you if you are preaching the word of God with assurance that it's true. Now, we have, we have something even greater. We don't have it miraculously revealed. We have the word of God. We have the, we have the Bible, and it has the power to save, and we know it's true. So when we preach the word of God today, we also do so with much assurance no doubts at all and then he says and you knew the manner of men among you you know it's interesting about this um, we can't say enough about the kind of person that a preacher or a teacher of the word of God needs to be if a person is a powerful speaker I mean a guy is just a great speaker he could lay it out like no other man could. If his life is not conducive to a man that a Christian should be, it's meaningless. It'll have no power. And the reason for it is it's not that the gospel doesn't have its power. It's that the gospel loses its influence through the speaker that's not living as he should. So what Paul is saying is, he says all of these things, it was in power, in the Holy Spirit, in much assurance, and as you know the kind of men that were among you for your sake. You know the kind of men, godly men, that preached the word of God. And all of that was for your sake. It was for somebody else. Finally, question number five in verse six. And you became followers of us, of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so 
The question is, what is meant by the phrase, with joy of the Holy Spirit? Obviously, the gospel um, was received by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obviously. But there were many that, had, that suffered, too, for the sake of the gospel. In fact, there was a time when the Bible talks about those that uh, thank God and praise God because they counted themselves worthy to be beaten for the cause of Christ. You know, when you think about some of the things that, that the early men had to go through and the strength and courage that they had to go through with great affliction, I think what he's saying is he's saying the same thing with those in Thessalonica. They, they received the word of God in great affliction as those that were being persecuted. In fact, in much affliction describes the external effect of the gospel. But the joy of the Holy Spirit is the internal effect. And something else too. Joy is a product of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the circumstances of your life. You can have joy. You can have peace. You can have the peace that surpasses all understanding regardless of the circumstances in life. And when you're the, the, when you're the kind of a person who puts all of his faith in trust in God, you might have much affliction in the receiving or the preaching of the word of God, but you can have joy. You can have joy. Joy of the Holy Spirit. One scholar said, the same spirit who gave power to those who preached the gospel was the same spirit that gave joy to those who received it. So I think that's what that means when it talks about and with joy of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.